preparing uh, our hearts as a church for Christmas this Advent season. We've been studying the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel, so let me encourage you to go ahead and turn there. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2 today, looking at the visit of the wise men, as we call them. One of the words that you're going to hear repeated in today's passage is the word worship. And so I want you to go ahead and either write it down or get in your head and and answer to this question, what is worship? What does it mean to worship? Let's read God's word together. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, And ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country By another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his power to our reading. May he add understanding to what we have heard. Let's pray together. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray, God, that your word would come with power so that we would be taught, so that we would be reborn, so that we would be transformed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Magician's Nephew is the first book, at least chronologically, uh, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, It is the story of Diggory and Polly uh, and of their Travel their journey to Narnia. They come to Narnia 
actually before Narnia even exists. When they come into the land, it's completely dark, uh, and they hear a song. Uh, it is the song of Aslan. If you don't aren't familiar with these stories, Aslan is this great lion, and he is the son. He is the son of the great king in the far east. So Aslan is the Jesus figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, And they see this lion walking through the darkness singing. And he is singing Narnia into creation. And so light and hills and grass and trees and animals all come into existence as Aslan sings. And as they listen to Aslan and as they see Aslan, their hearts are drawn to him. They are in awe of who he is and yet they also find him approachable. But Diggory and Polly are not the only ones there. Two other people have come into Narnia with them. One is Jadis, and she is an evil witch. Uh, She is the white witch uh, from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, And Jadis is absolutely terrified of Aslan. In fact, she she takes a piece of a lamppost uh, and tries to throw it at Aslan to hurt him. Of course, it doesn't hurt him. It just bounces off his head. Uh, and so she runs away in fear and in terror and in anger. And then uh, there is Diggory's uncle, Andrew. Andrew is a rather pathetic magician, uh, and he is a rather pathetic man. He is only interested in what he can get for himself. And as he sees Aslan creating, he doesn't really, he doesn't really see Aslan. He does see Aslan, but really what he sees is all of the potential of uh, these things springing out of the earth, and he's trying to figure out how he can use it for his own benefit. But as uh, Aslan continues to sing, and then he creates these talking animals, um, Andrew, too, becomes scared. Uh, he, he, he can't hear the song. All he can hear is the roaring. Uh, and when all of the talking animals who are curious about what kind of animal Andrew is uh, run up to him, and start trying to talk to them, he can't hear them. All he hears is their noises, and he thinks they're trying to eat him. Uh, And so Andrew also runs away in fear and terror. And so we see same lion, but different responses. And that's exactly what Matthew is showing us in this passage. We have the same Jesus, the same king, but we have three different responses to that king. We have the response of fear and hatred. We have a response of indifference. And we have a response of joy and worship. And Jesus brings those different responses from different people. Some people respond to Jesus with fear and anger. Some people respond to Jesus with indifference. And some people respond to Jesus with joy and worship. So as we walk through each of these responses... I want you to begin asking the question, what about me? What, how do I respond to Jesus? Let's talk about the fear and anger, fear and hatred, I believe is what I put on there. Fear and anger, good. Um, so Matthew tells us that these events happen after Jesus was born. Matthew actually doesn't tell us a lot about the birth of Jesus. What we have here probably occurred sometime around like about two years after Jesus was born. So this is where our, our nativity scenes kind of mislead us. Um, I had a professor one time who said that if, uh, 
If you have a nativity scene in your home, uh, then, you know, you got the shepherds at the birth of baby Jesus there in the manger. You should probably put the wise men in another room because they're not there yet. Uh, they are they are still traveling uh, to to see Jesus. And so they do not arrive. Uh, Jesus at this point is probably somewhere around two years old. So if you know Bo Bryson, Jesus would be about Bo's age at this point. Um, and we're told that these things happen in the days of Herod, the king. Who is Herod? Well, he's not Jewish. He's actually from the land of Edom. And so he's not a descendant of David. In other words, he doesn't belong on the throne, not according uh, to the Jews anyway. He's an appointed king. He's been appointed by Rome. And history tells us that Herod was a great builder. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem as well as many other things. Uh, He was pretty effective at keeping the peace in Jerusalem. But he was also a ruthless tyrant, as we're going to see next week. And so these strangers from the east come to Herod's city. They come to Jerusalem and they're asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Not born to be king, not destined to be king, but already king. That's what they're asking. And why are they seeking him? They say, we have come to worship him. Now, what is Herod's response to the news? Look in verse 3. How does Herod feel about this? He says he's troubled. He's agitated. He's stirred up. And, of course, when a tyrant like Herod is agitated and stirred up, everybody around him is going to be stirred up also. Why do you think Herod is troubled? What's got him so agitated about this king of the Jews? Well, it's because he's the king. He's the one who has the power. And so a new king would be a threat to his power. And history tells us that Herod even murdered his sons so that he could hold on to his power. Herod loves power. And he's heard the prophecies about the Messiah. Look at verse 4. He knows exactly who these wise men are looking for because he calls the chief priests and the scribes together and he says, uh, where, is, where did the prophecy say the Messiah is to be born? Remember the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the long-awaited Anointed one, the king who was promised to come. We've talked about that now for a couple of weeks. Herod knows who the Messiah is. He knows the prophecies. He knows who they're looking for. And so he calls uh, the, the priests and scribes together. And he's afraid. He's threatened. He loves his power. And he doesn't want to lose it. And we're going to see next week just how far he'll go to try and keep it. So instead of bowing down to worship this new Messiah, Herod summons the wise men. We see in verse 7, he summons them secretly. Why does he summon them secretly? Well, it's because he doesn't want any publicity. He doesn't want anyone to know about this new king. And so he summons the wise men secretly. 
And he tells them that they need to go and find him. And when they find him, they can come back so that he can go and worship. Now, we should ask, why doesn't he just go with them and worship if he really wants to worship? Herod is plotting. And so. Why. Why does Herod plot? What is it that threatens Herod? He doesn't want to lose his power. He's afraid. What about you? Are you threatened by Jesus? Now, before you answer that question quickly, you need to know that Jesus is a threat to you. You see, he's a king. And to worship a king, that word for worship in this passage, it means to throw yourself down on the ground. To lower yourself and acknowledge that someone is greater. And that's a threat, isn't it? It feels very threatening to me to bow the knee and acknowledge that someone is greater. But that's exactly what has to happen. In order to to worship Jesus, you have to give up your power. You have to give up your control. You have to give up yourself. Jesus would say later on that the person who follows him is the person who gives up his who gives up his life, who takes up his cross, who follows Jesus down into death. That's a threat, isn't it? Because our our natures want to go the opposite direction. We want to go away from death. We want to elevate ourselves, just like Herod. We're not really that different. The same sinful heart that beats in Herod beats in me. I want to I want to be elevated, not humiliated. And yet to worship is to bow the knee. Herod refuses to bow because Herod wants to be great. What about you? What do you want? Other people respond to Jesus with indifference. Herod responds with fear, he responds with anger. Then there are others who who are indifferent. They're apathetic to Jesus. They hear about Jesus and their response is, eh. That's the chief priest and the scribes. These are the men that Herod calls together because they know the Bible. They're the Bible experts, the Bible teachers. They would have they would have memorized large portions of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And so when Herod wants to know where the Messiah is to be born, he knows exactly who to ask. He calls for them in verse five. And they give him this quick answer. They tell him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They tell Herod, we know exactly where the Messiah is to be born. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Micah tells us that. Now, what do they do? They've heard the news that. There are some foreigners in town looking for the Messiah. They've seen some kind of sign, a star that the Messiah has been born. They know where the Messiah is to be be found. So, So what is their response? They say, hallelujah. Let's go. The, the, the one we've been waiting for is finally here. Let's go with these magi and let's go and, and, and worship the Messiah. Let's make sure these things are true. 
Nope. That's not what they do. What they do is nothing. Best we can tell, they just go back to business as usual. They do not worship. They hear the news that the Messiah has come, and they go on with their lives as if nothing has changed. They are indifferent to Jesus. How about you and I? How are we in danger of becoming indifferent to Jesus, apathetic? You know, the the scriptures don't tell us what it is that captivates the hearts of these priests and scribes. But we know something does. Because it's something other than God. Because we know that if their hearts had been captivated by God, they would have jumped at the chance to go and see if these things were true. Because we worship what we love. We worship what captivates us. And these men do not worship the newborn Jesus. They don't investigate. They don't pray and ask God if these things are true. They should have been the ones who were already eagerly seeking for the coming of the Messiah, but they weren't. They are surrounded with the things of God, but they do not seek God himself. Are we in danger of the same? I mean, it's very easy, especially at at Christmas time, that we can focus on so many different things except for the Jesus at the center of it. Children, teenagers, I want very much for you to learn the Bible. I want very much for you to learn good theology. I want your heads to be full of knowledge. But I also want your hearts to be full of God. I do not want us to be like these priests and scribes whose heads, as J.C. Ryle says, whose heads are full of Bible, but their hearts have no grace. Let's pray that we would not become indifferent to Jesus. We don't simply want to be students of Jesus. We want to be worshipers of Jesus. Some respond with indifference. And thankfully, we also see that some respond with worship. This, of course, would be the Magi. Who are these people? The word is not wise men. It's Magi. Uh, We don't really have a great translation for that. It's where we get our word magician from. It would appear that these men are astrologers. So they would they would look at the stars and try to discern signs. That's how they end up in Jerusalem. They would have been advisors to kings, not not kings themselves, but they would have worked in the royal court guiding and advising kings. And we're told that they come from the east. We don't know where in the east, but it is interesting that they know something of Jewish prophecy. We don't know which one. We don't know why this star. There are some different scripture passages that it could point to, but somehow they know to be looking. And so we draw the conclusion that these men are probably from near Babylon or Persia, because that's exactly where the Jews had gone into exile some 500 years before this. 
Somehow these men have become aware of Old Testament prophecy, and they know to be looking for the king of the Jews. And so they've traveled some 400 to 700 miles to come to Jerusalem. This is before cars and planes and trains. Uh, They would have come probably on camels. They would have been wealthier. And they follow a star. A star guides them. Now, lots of people have tried to explain a natural phenomenon that could, uh, could, could make sense of this. Was this a, a certain star? Was this a certain planet rising a certain way? Was this a, a supernova? But none of those things really explain how a star would take a group of uh, astrologers some 400 to 700 miles west to Jerusalem. The only thing that can explain that would be if there's somebody who could bend creation to his will. Who could make nature do what he wanted it to do so that these men would get just where he wanted them to go. And of course that would be the one who created the stars to begin with. So I wanna, I'm amazed and I want to take you through just how God draws these men to his son, Jesus. Think about all the different ways he's bent history and nature. 500 years, 586 B.C. is when the Jews are sent into exile. That's when men like Daniel go. In fact, these men, their ancestors may have worked with Daniel because Daniel was an advisor. He would have worked with Magi like this. He was an advisor to the king. And that was... 500 years before. And so somehow God's word moves with his people in exile. And 500 years later, these men are studying it and they're looking at the stars. And then, supernaturally, a star brings them from the east towards Jerusalem. Now, the exile would have been a very painful part of Jewish history. And you may have experienced very painful parts of your own story. But I want you to see how God uses even exile, even 500 years later, to draw people to himself. That's the kind of God at work in the Bible. So he draws these magi in. And why are they looking for this king? They say they're looking for the king of the Jews. Why are they looking for him? So they can worship him. So they can bow down to him. It's interesting. Matthew's gospel begins with the world coming to worship Jesus. These are not Jewish men. These are Gentiles. They're outsiders. They're foreigners. Matthew begins his gospel with foreigners coming to worship Jesus. And he will end his gospel in Matthew 28 with Jesus sending his disciples out into the world. Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He is the king of the world. And he is to be worshipped by people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. That's going on right here. So what is their response? How do they worship? Well, first let's look at their hearts. What do they feel? Verse 10. When they see the star, 
they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, Matthew could have just said they were happy. But he uses four words to try and describe just how happy these magi were. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't know what that looks like for Persian royal advisors. I know what it looks like for us. What do you do when you rejoice exceedingly with great joy? You smile. You shout. You sing. You clap. You dance. What was Morocco doing yesterday when they won in the soccer game? They were shouting, they were singing, they were dancing, they were hoisting their coach upon their shoulders. They were rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. That's what these men are doing when they see the star and it comes to rest over the house. Their hearts are full of joy. And then what do they do when they get in the house? And I want you to picture this scene. Joseph is a tradesman, probably a carpenter. His house would have been very simple, very small. Mary and Jesus would have been dressed very simply, probably in the one room of the house. And in come these wise men. And by the way, there probably were more than three. We don't know that there were three. And they likely came because of who they were and because of what they brought with them. They likely came with servants and guards. So this entourage, this royal entourage, shows up at... This carpenter's house. And they walk in the door. And these richly attired men. Throw themselves. At the feet of the carpenter's son. And they bow down. And they give him honor. And then they bring out. Their gifts. Gold. Frankincense. Myrrh. Gifts fit for royalty. Gifts that Joseph's family probably would never see their entire life. That's what they do. They are overwhelmed with joy. And then they humble themselves. These men of high station. They throw themselves at the feet of a carpenter's boy. And they give him these wonderfully rich gifts. What about you? What does your worship look like? Where would you put yourself if you had to pick one of these three? I wonder, have you ever thought about giving in this way? We talk about giving here. We talk about it as in, um, something we do, right? We, we talked about it in Galatians 6.6, 6, that it's a, it's a sharing, that we support the worship of the church with it. Uh, we, we talk about it being a spiritual discipline. It's a sacrifice that we have to make. But have you ever considered that giving is actually an act of worship? In fact, that at first and foremost, it is an act of worship. We give because we love and adore God and we want him to have the best. But think about the attitude of these men. Let's compare it maybe to some of our own. The star, they're back east and the star shows up. And they say, hey, you know, one runs into the office of the other. Hey, the, the star, I've seen the star. I think the, the king that we're looking for has been 
born. You want to go, you want to make the trip? Eh, I got it. I'm pretty busy today. Kids got a game later. Maybe we can do it tomorrow. Okay, maybe we can do it tomorrow. What should we take him? Uh, what do we got around here? Something left over. Let's give him that. Let's give him. Let's give him what just what we have left. If we want to make sure that we've got every we, we've we've covered all our other bases. We can worship him with what's left over. That's often maybe how we think about it. We don't say that out loud, but in our hearts, that's the struggle, isn't it? In Discover Grace, our membership class, we talk about uh, giving our time and treasure and talents. And here we see the Magi, these pagan foreigners, take the time to travel several hundred miles to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they give the best. And then they go home. They made, let's just, let's just give it a conservative estimate and say they traveled 500 miles. They made a 1,000 mile round trip to give Jesus some presents. And that's it. They might have been in Bethlehem a day, two days, for several weeks worth of travel. They were unashamed to worship him in that way. What a great example of faith they are for us. What about us? Why should we worship? You know, what's interesting is we don't actually know what the Magi knew about Jesus. They never heard him teach. They never saw him do any miracles. As far as we know, they weren't at the cross or the empty tomb. And yet they worship him. We don't know why. But why should you come to Jesus? Why should you bow the knee? Certainly because he's king. And because he's worthy of it. But there's more. We even sang it this morning. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross he bears for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Jesus is worthy of your worship. Not only because he's king, but also because he's your savior. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Is that worth it? Is he worthy of your worship? I hope so. As we pray, I want you to consider those things. What is my response 
to Jesus. And if it's not what you would want it to be, then pray that God would give you a heart of joy, a heart of humility, and a heart of worship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank